want to say that it is good to be with you this evening. We're glad that you're here and come out and start this gospel meeting. Worship God with us. Hopefully we'll have something to say that you'll be able to use as you go along life's way, maybe. I'm sorry that Brother Timothy didn't make it. I understand the food poisoning thing. When you're in that work, you tend to eat in fast food joints a lot. Years ago, I was headed to Mustang, Oklahoma and stopped in Ardmore and little convenience store and bought me a sausage on a stick and some cheesy jalapeno fries and I got to Paul's Valley before it stopped me and uh, frankly I didn't care whether the meeting went on or not I, I thought it was all over but the crime but the next day I was better so hopefully Timothy will be able to be with you tomorrow and be able to, to uh, start the series that he had planned as I understand it we, we were going to have a series this week of faith building a based basically on academia and an approach to Christian apologetics. I want to start on a study that I have that I do with people on called Why I Believe the Bible and some basics on why I believe that. Let me tell you what brought this on, folks. Years ago, and I'm talking about a long time ago, more than years than I want to think about, we were knocking doors in El Paso. And I come across a lady, and I will never forget her, I don't guess, as long as I live, by the name of Delgado. And I knocked on that door, and and she said, oh, yeah, come on in. So I come in, and I thought, well, here's something positive. Maybe from door knocking, just cold turkey like that, found somebody interested in the gospel, we're going to be able to study. And she goes, I want you to know, I noticed that she had one degree on one wall from Harvard and one from Yale. Now, I know that that is not as good as my high school diploma from Tom Bean, but I thought, well, maybe she could try to keep up anyway, you know. She made the statement to me, nobody's ever been able to convince me why they believe there is a God. And I don't think I did very well that day. I didn't convince her. I know I didn't. And I don't know that she was going to be convinced. And she talked to preachers, priests, and all kinds of other people. And evidently she'd been able to, to argue with them and all that. The thing that bothered me was I kind of liked the lady for some reason. I don't know why it's stuck in my mind like that. But as we were visiting, I got to visit with her. I said, there's something odd about your health. I've noticed she had cancer. And she goes, I have six months to live. Now, I didn't know exactly how to argue from the Harvard School of Theology or the Yale School of Theology but I said, Miss Delgado, I'll tell you one thing. In six months, you're going to know whether I'm right or you're right. And you better hope I'm wrong. Well, she's long gone now, but I decided what I'm going to do is I want to go and I want to see if there's evidence as to why we believe in God. Now, when I was growing up, I would ask, you didn't ask my dad questions like that. Why we believe in God? Uh, do you really think the Bible is true? I mean, you're getting the backhand, I guarantee it. So we didn't need, and, but there's got to be a better reason for believing what we do and doing what we do than because daddy said there's a God. I doubt very seriously most people growing up, they accept their raising. You know what the problem with that is? The problem with that is, is if you were raised to believe in Muhammad, you're not going to believe in Jesus. If you're raised to believe in Jesus, you're not going to believe in any of these other things. If you were raised in a family that didn't believe in God at all, you're not going to do any exploring whether there is a God. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Now, I want you folks to know something. I believe in faith. 
But I don't believe in blind faith. And I don't believe God expected you to have blind faith when it comes to His existence. Now here's what I decided I'm going to do. I'm going to start studying. I'm going to get me some books and I'm going to read some things. And I'm going to see, is there any way I could put together a sermon on why we believe there's a God? And then I wound up going, okay, I can make two out of this. <laughs> Maybe we can. Then it came a weekend meeting. And then we did a 10-day meeting on it. Years ago, there was a debate between Alexander Campbell and a fellow named Owen on the existence of God. I don't know if that debate is in print or not or whether you can read it. But Mr. Owen had done a good job as an atheist. And he had taken on preachers and priests from all over and... He'd done a pretty good job of carving them up until he ran into Mr. Campbell. And they went at it. After Mr. Owen got done, he said, well, I've exhausted my material on why I do not believe in God. He sat down, fasten your seatbelts. We're not going to do this tonight, I promise. Alexander Campbell preached eight more hours on why he believed in God after Mr. Owen quit. And there's some good material in that. There's some good reasoning in that from an educated standpoint. Why do you believe there's a God? You take your Sundays. You take your midweek. You take your time to study this Bible. Why do you believe there's a God? Are we doing this just because, well, I've always done it. Or is there some evidence to it? I want to tell you something. No one has seen God. I cannot give you a Polaroid picture of God. Sorry about that. Young people, Google that. The old people know what I'm talking about. I cannot give you a picture of God on your iPhone. There, that's more modern. I cannot show you physically what God looks like. Neither can anyone else. But you know, there's evidence about what God can do. There's evidence about God's existence. If you approached it from a standpoint of a court of law, it would be we'll weigh the evidence and beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, I'm not going to get into how we got the Bible and the manuscripts and the codexes. We may do that some other time. I do not intend to get into evolution. And why? I don't believe in evolution because I don't have that much faith. I'll just be honest with you. I was with Jerry McCorkle recently, and those of you that remember the Brotherhood meeting, I did discuss his inappropriate use of PowerPoint on evolution. But he made a good point, didn't he? Some other day we'll discuss that. But there is ample evidence that God exists, and all we have to do is open our eyes, people. And God is around us. In the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse 16, and not everything that we're going to talk about is going to come from Scripture, because I know a lot of times people say, well, you can't use Scripture to prove Scripture, and that'd be fine. Peter said, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He said, We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but were eyewitnesses of of His majesty. If you go to the little book of 1 John, just a little further over, He said, The Word of life, whom our eyes have seen and our hands have handled. They said, We were eyewitnesses. We're telling you what we saw. I've heard people call the apostles liars. 
that they made it all up. But there's no proof offered. There's no proof offered to show, you know, we all come from the same part of the country, folks. And in this part of the world, you call a man a liar, you better either know him real well, or you better be able to whip him. That's pretty strong language. Now, if Peter was a liar, where is he a liar? What did he lie about? And what proof is there throughout all the ages of history that says the man was a liar? None will ever be offered. John, he said, I touched him. I handled him. I saw it. Now, I don't know about civics and government now, but when I was going to school, if you had three eyewitness accounts, you could put a fellow in the electric chair. I don't even know if they do that anymore. But they wanted three eyewitness accounts. Now, when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul says... That he appeared unto the, the apostles, minus Judas, obviously. And to above 500 brethren. How many eyewitnesses does it take for you to believe? If you had 11 men and 500 brethren, the greater part which remained to that day, and they all said, we saw it. We touched him. We know. We believe. Why would you call all of them a liar? Are they all liars? Now here's the kicker to this whole deal on the eyewitness thing. On the day of Pentecost, the Bible says Peter standing up with the eleven opened his mouth and he used the keys of the kingdom, preached Jesus and him crucified. These people had been in Jerusalem, folks. This is where it happened. This is where the Passover was. This is where the crucifixion was. Fifty days. Just a little over a month before. Now, I want you to know I have memory issues. But I can pretty much remember what happened in February. I may not can remember what happened 30 years ago. But I remember what happened last month. And they remembered... And 3,000 of them stood there. Now, when Peter preached to them, they were pricked in their hearts. You know what Peter said? You remember this guy that came and he did all these miracles and wonders and signs in your presence? And they go, yeah. Then he began to talk about the scriptures. And he said, this was the Messiah, the Son of God. And you killed him. Some of those people stood in that crowd and were among the ones that said crucify. You don't think they remembered that? They saw him die. Fifty days later, 3,000 obeyed the gospel. Were they all knuckleheads? Were they all idiots? But surely among those 3,000, one of them would have known, hey, these guys are liars. Maybe we ought to watch out for them. But they didn't. And 3,000 of them obeyed the gospel that 50 days before you put him on the cross. How many eyewitnesses does it take for us to believe, people? How much testimony does it take? Now, I want you to know that the reason Bill Clinton 
outside of his moral issues, had a successful administration, is he was advised by aliens. Stay with me. (laughs) That one threw him, didn't it? You know how I know that? Because it said so at the little magazine at Dollar General there in Gunner. And he had witnesses that they had, they quoted people that saw Bill Clinton being advised by aliens. We listen to that kind of junk. We read that stuff right and left. But they tell you about the Son of God that they handled and that they saw and they died for. But they're liars. Let me ask you a question. You believe in Alexander the Great? I watched a documentary on the other day. Any guy that at 39 years old conquers the known world and then cries because there's no more left, he's my kind of scum. I want you to know that. Man, I wish there was somebody else left for me to conquer. No wonder he died so young. He done beat everybody up. We've got eyewitnesses' accounts of him. We've got the written record of his generals, the Ptolemies, of whom Cleopatra was one. And we believe that. What about Julius Caesar? The Ides of March? Brutus, the honorable man? One of the most famous murders in all of history? We believe that. How do you know that happened? Did you see it? No, but there were eyewitnesses that did. We teach it in our schools to our kids based on eyewitness testimony. And we accept it. You know, Cleopatra, it has been brought down through history and debated. Why is she always depicted as a white person? Because she was Greek from the Ptolemies. She was not Egyptian. She was Greek. How do you know that? Eyewitness testimonies. All you got to do is read history about it. And the people that knew and lived in that time. Do you know King Agrippa? Believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Where do you think he got his power? You know who his granddad was? Agrippa the Great? He was the admiral that trapped Cleopatra's navy at Actium. And because he defeated her in that water, in that harbor, and we'll get into the tactics some other time of how he did it, brilliantly planned, Caesar Augustus awarded him and his family certain land and power, and that's where Agrippa come from. We know about that because of eyewitness testimony. And we believe that. You've got the apostles. You've got Paul as one born out of due season. 500 brethren. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. And they're all liars. Really? There's no evidence to that. Were they all lying to you? Were they all wrong? Or maybe... As the old folks say, well, you got some smoke there, boy. You got a fire somewhere. How many does it take for us to believe? Now, Peter knew that people were not going to accept what he had to say about that. They knew. He knew. 
through the Spirit, I believe, that people were not going to trust Him. So you go down to verse 19 of this same chapter, and he says, But we have the more sure word of prophecy. Do you know there's over 300 prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament? I'm not going to say Jesus. There's 300, over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament of the Messiah. Now, some of them Jesus could control people. The Bible says the last time that he went into Jerusalem, he would be riding on a colt on which no man had sat. I have ridden colts. <laughs> On which no man has sat. And some of them, no man still sat on them. <laughs> so you can count that a miracle or not, depending on how you want to look at it. But you know, he said, go tell this guy over here, I needed that cold. They went and got the cold. He sat on the cold. And he come into Jerusalem. You know, he can control that. But 300 of them? Now, Beverly, whenever the babies were coming on, she always was very quick at things. When Destiny got here, the last one, we were up and we were playing table tennis. We had a little table tennis set and we were playing it. And Bev goes, hmm, I think I need to go to the doctor. Well, I panic. I mean, I'm ready. I mean, baby, when she says it's time to go, we got her there a little over two hours later. We had a baby. (laughs) You know, they don't get to pick where they're born. I used to tell Bev, don't worry about it if you go into labor. I saw the film. I can do this. <laughs> it didn't instill confidence in her. That doctor said when she feels the pain, you get her up here. Otherwise, you'll be having the baby in the back of that car. Babies come when babies come. When they're going to be delivered. The Bible says in Micah 2, he'd be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just like the Bible says. He didn't get to pick that. He had no control over that, I assure you. But that's exactly what happened. Now, the Romans were friendly folks, (laughs) especially if you were considered a criminal. And the day they killed Jesus, I'm sure he said, now look, I know y'all don't believe it, but I'm kind of a holy guy, and those are common thieves, and I'd like to be crucified on a different day. Because I don't want to die with the riffraff. You know what I mean? The Romans didn't care about that. You didn't get to pick how you died, when you died, or where you died with the Roman Empire. They weren't big on human rights. The Bible said he'd be numbered with the transgressors and he was crucified between two thieves. He didn't get a choice in that. Fellas, you got a will? Did you leave the wife a will about what you want to happen to you after you die? I don't know what that's worth. (laughs) I know this, when you're gone, there ain't a whole lot you're going to do about it. If she puts you in a tow sack in the backyard, the Bible says Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. He didn't have two nickels to rub together. He told the apostles one time, he said, The foxes have holes, the birds have nests. Son of man, that's not where to lay his head. And when you're dead, you're dead. You don't get a vote on what's happening. I like the way people always want to plan. And maybe it's good to plan funerals. I'm not against that. But you're not going to be there to see that it actually gets pulled off the way you wanted it. Trust me on this one. 
And Jesus wasn't either. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, went and begged Pilate for the body of the Lord. Which is amazing to me. Because the apostles had fled. His inner circle had ran. But the rich man risked an awful lot when he went to Pilate and begged for the body. And Pilate said, okay. Laid him in his own new tomb. And he was buried in a rich man's tomb. You think all that just a coincidence? I always wondered, what do Jewish folks think, modern day Jewish folks, think about this guy that came along and fulfilled all 300 of the prophecies? You ready? I found a book on it. And it said this. The apostles of the first century were so knowledgeable of Scripture and so educated, take that for what it's worth, that they were able to take 300 prophecies, twist them, make them fit Jesus like a glove. Really? Now, I can see where they could twist two or three or ten or twelve, but 300? And through the stream of time, one human if it be proper to say it that way, has fulfilled all 300. Just one. Isn't that odd? And that one lived in the first century. And his name was Jesus. Isn't it great the way the apostles were so magnificent thinkers and orators that they could twist every single prophecy to fit Jesus? All 300? You've got thousands of eyewitnesses there. You've got 300 prophecies which Jesus couldn't control and nobody's ever been able to meet them all except one person. What does it take to believe, people? How big a coincidence is that? I read a little further in this book, and you're going to like this. The reason the apostles were able to do this is because in the first century A.D., there was a Messiah fever pitch. And I got to thinking about that. Messiah fever was running rampant through the Holy Land in the first century A.D. Reckon why. Now the book didn't cover this part. But I got to thinking, reckon why. Now if you go back to the book of Daniel, the ninth chapter, about 24 to 26, you're going to read about Daniel's 70 weeks. The reason that there was a Messiah fever in the first century, is they could add. In prophecy, they took the weeks to be 490 years from the rebuilding of the temple. This thing occurred about 515 B.C., completed about 450. Either way, when you take Daniel's prophecy, you're getting to the middle of the first century. They could do the math. According to Daniel's prophecy, the Messiah would be cut off in the middle of the seventh week, 490 years later. That brings you about 30, 33 A.D. And it just coincidentally happens that that's when Messiah was cut off, that Jesus died. Why do you think they were looking for the Messiah so feverishly in the first century? Because they had Daniel's 90 weeks and they could add. 
70 weeks. They could add. They knew the math. And it put Jesus at the right place, at the right time, fulfilling 300 prophecies. Now, folks, I believe in coincidences. But you got to be kidding me on this one. Do the math. Anybody else is too early or too late. Years ago, I was reading a book by Carl Sagan and Isaac Asimov, if I'm saying his name properly. Mike may remember a guy that we learned about in the early 80s by the name of Velikovsky. And I read Velikovsky along with Sagan and Asimov. And there was a debate. (coughs) You see, Velikovsky wrote a book called Ages and Chaos, and he believed that the universe was a shooting gallery. Sagan and Asimov, also astronomers, did not believe that it was that way, but it was more orderly. Of course, now we're hearing about asteroids that can crash into the earth and all kinds of things like that, which I think science is more now leaning toward Velikovsky that skipped that. Here's the point. They were discussing the Exodus. Three of the most learned minds of our day. They were discussing the Exodus. Now, Velikovsky said what happened was as Moses and the children of Israel approached the Red Sea, hook them horns, sorry, OU, an asteroid that looked like a calf, the golden calf, yeah, it looked like a calf came to the earth and the gravitational pull separated the waters and the children of Israel went through on dry ground, hook them horns. (laughs) And that's what happened. Now, As I read further, I wanted to know what these other two learned men were going to say in response to the asteroid theory. And they said, that's not what happened. What happened was out in the Mediterranean, there's an island and it's a volcano. And it exploded and erupted causing a tsunami undersea. And it parted the waters as the children of Israel were crossing. I read that four times, folks. Now, I do not know if this has escaped you yet or not. The irony to me was they were not discussing whether the water parted or whether the exodus happened, but how God did the trick. Now, did God use an asteroid? Did God use a mighty wind like the Bible said? Did he use a tsunami? Do you know The astronomical odds of just as Moses said with the Egyptians coming down upon him. Stand still and behold the salvation of God. And just at that moment, the water parted. Do you know the astronomical odds of an earthquake, a tsunami, an asteroid just happened at that moment? And I'm supposed to have faith in that? I believe God parted those waters. You see, they didn't debate whether or not it happened. They debated how it happened. And I'll not argue that with you. I think sometimes God may have used nature to do things. God's in control of nature. He created it. I want you to know that I believe the odds... I don't know how to calculate that. Maybe somebody with much more learning than me can do that. 
But it's got to be phenomenal odds that as minute he put that staff to the water, it parted. But we don't believe in God. We'd rather believe in an asteroid or a tsunami. Really? Really? Long time Christianity was made fun of, and even Judaism, because there was no place called Ur of the Chaldees. Chaldees, however you want to say it. I'm not. Guys from Texas and Oklahoma shouldn't be able to speak Greek and Aramaic. There ought to be a law against that. But wherever that place was, Ur, it's supposed to be in Mesopotamia, what we call Iraq today, according to the History Channel. And if you can't believe them, who can you believe? So, but there was no city called Ur. And the name Abraham was considered a much later name among Jewish people. Abram, Abraham, whatever you want to say. And therefore the Bible could not have been written when it was said to have been written because that name and that city did not exist. In the 1930s they were doing excavations, southern Iraq, Mesopotamia area. And they found what is called, boy I hope I say this one right, a ziggurat, ziggurat, kind of a pyramid looking building. Turns out a ziggurat, ziggurat, whatever you want to call this thing, is a library. Do you know what the name of the town was where this thing was built? Ur of the Chaldeans. Dated to the date of Abraham. Do you know that in their records they found a common name among the people of Ur? They didn't find our guy necessarily. But they found the name Abraham was a common name to that city. Now folks, they dug that up over there. If the world was a different place, I would say you could go see it. I'm not recommending you do that at this point. (laughs) Maybe someday you can. But Ur existed. Abraham was a name. Abram was a name that was common among them. You know, there was not supposed to be any writing in the days of Moses. They weren't, people weren't smart enough to write until they dug up the steel of Hammurabi, if I've said his name right. Dated about the time of Moses and very similar commands to the Ten Commandments. And it was written. Every time they've questioned the Bible, the Bible has been true. Were the Hebrews really in Egypt? According to the Tel Armana tablets, they were. And those weren't written by God's people. How do we explain that? Now, you're not going to hear much about this anymore. In fact, is my guess is those of you that are fairly young compared to myself have not heard this at all. And you never will. Jeremy's grandfather, my dad, worked for NASA, and he worked on the moonshot. Now, I know there's conspiracy theories out there, but I assure you, my dad had been to Arizona, (laughs) and he knew the difference between Arizona and the moon. (laughs) And he did not shoot those guys to Arizona, (laughs) but he was worried about something. You see, if evolution is correct, the earth has atmosphere and that keeps the lunar dust down. But the moon doesn't have atmosphere. 
And if things are billions and billions of years old, like Sagan would say, there's enough moon dust on that planet or that rock up there that when we land that pod, it will bury him. There will be no small step for anybody, and there is no rescue in space. Now, my dad was a Bible believer, but this questioned his faith. He knew those guys, and he's fixing to send them up there. He was communications. He would be listening to them when they died. Friends of his. I remember the night before the shot, he was sweating bullets. He, he was just nervous, wreck. When it come time for the eagle to land, Dad hadn't slept much. But I remember when the pod landed, don't you? It went poof. Neil Armstrong stepped out. You saw the footprint. They measured the lunar dust. That was part of the experiment. You got to do that sort of stuff. The moon was between six and 10,000 years old, according to lunar dust. You know how the Bible says the universe is? Now, I'm telling you, folks, I didn't have to go to college to get that one. I was in sixth grade, seventh grade, somewhere along in there, junior high age. I remember my dad sweating bullets over it. Do you remember when the Mars rover landed? We sent that thing to Mars, and we're going to have this thing, and it's going to run around and take pictures of Mars. Do you, you know what happened? It landed on Mars, and it's roving around. How come I didn't hear about lunar dust? You know how much lunar dust is on Mars? Six to 10,000 years, and you're not going to hear about that. Do you know what the theory was after the moon? Well, the moon must be a new member of the solar system. Now, wait, ho, ho, ho. I thought that's what controlled the tides. <laughs> and what a coyotes howl at if it wasn't there. <laughs> we know better than that, don't we? Just like the Bible says. Just like God said. In Job chapter 40, you're going to read about behemoth and Leviathan. And I'm going to tell you something. If you look at the margin of your Bible, the little footnote down there, when you get to behemoth, whose tail was like a giant cedar and ate out of the treetops, it's going to say a pig or a hippopotamus. <laughs> Sounds like a brontosaurus to me. You read it. When you get to Leviathan, that they could not kill, catch, control, they're going to say crocodile. Now, folks, they were catching crocodiles for years. They weren't afraid of crocodiles. But they were afraid of Leviathan. Read it. What's Job talking about in Job 40 and 41? Some animal. Now, God's point was this. I make those animals and you're afraid of them, but you're not afraid of me. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it is. But no, that can't be, can it? It can't be. In Psalms 8 and 8, you're going to read about the paths of the sea. When they were laying the, the cross-continental cables under the ocean, it kept snapping them when they're trying to communicate from the United States to Europe. One guy read this thing here and figured out that there were currents out there. We call it the Gulf Stream. Now, by the way, if you're a kayaker <laughs> and you're in the ocean and you get in that Hummer, it is awful tough to get out of it. I want you to know, you'll all be in Canada before you get loose. And they realized that if they would lay that cable according to the paths of the sea, as Psalms 8 and 8 said, it wouldn't break. 
But that was written hundreds, thousands of years ago. Millennia ago, that was written. The earth is round, according to Isaiah 40 and 22. Of course, we all know that's not true. If you get out just past Amarillo, I know you're dropping off the edge of the earth. Wouldn't dare go out there. People scoffed at that for years. Earth flat. No, the earth is round. The earth sits on nothing. Oh, no, there's a real strong guy named Atlas that holds it up. And for nine ninety five, he'll sell you his course, and you could be a bodybuilder too. The earth sits on nothing. God controls it. Empty spaces in the northern sky, Job 26 and verse 7. Just like the Bible says. Now, the Bible's not a book of science, and it's not a book of astronomy. It's not intended to be. But at every turn, the Bible has been found to be exactly accurate. Do you think that's a coincidence? It just happened? Pretty good for a bunch of liars, don't you think? Pretty educated. What are you going to do about this resurrection? I've thought about that. And I've read several theories on it. Now, let me give you my favorite one before I get into the resurrection, the swoon theory, and all this kind of junk. I read a book by an atheist. I like reading books by atheists because they challenge my thinking, and I don't recommend that. But I like to do that. And I was reading one deal that said, Jesus knew good and well that when he went to the temple and he turned over the tables of the money changers, that that was like attacking Wall Street. And he knew good and well that they were going to be upset at him for upsetting the financial system and put in motion the, 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 the steps to the cross. And then when Jesus was before Pilate, this guy wrote, you look at his answers, he was setting himself up to be killed. When he went to Herod, he did not make a defense. They sent him back to Pilate. He made no defense. And at some point, he completely shut down. Then there's a line where this guy was trying to show you why you shouldn't believe in Jesus. And the line said this, It is obvious to any astute person that Jesus was in control of the whole thing the whole time. You think? (laughs) Really? Isn't that what Jesus said? You don't take my life, I lay it down. I can call legions of angels. You know what? I agree with that fellow a hundred percent. Jesus was in control the whole time. Isn't that odd? Reckon why Jesus was in control the whole time. He could manipulate the Jewish kingdom. He could manipulate the temple. He could manipulate the Roman Empire to serve his purpose. Because he had a mission from God. And no man was going to stand in the way of it. You bet Jesus was in control. And greater love had this than no man. Than a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus did that. They didn't take it. He laid it down. He was in control the whole way. You better believe he is. And he's still in control. Did the disciples steal the body? 
The problem with that is they had a Roman guard and a temple guard around that particular tomb that Jesus was laid, that grave. And so you got 12 guys with one sword between them. And they take on the Roman Empire and the temple guard with one sword. Rambo would be proud. You know, I like Rambo, which really stands for rarely anything marginally believable occurring. <laughs> I can't keep my battery up overnight. This guy gets in a helicopter, sat there for 30 years, and it fired right up. I mean, who made that battery? You know what I mean? And then he defeats all of them by himself. I don't know why we sent all them guys over there. We just sent him. Well, that's what you're asked to believe about these disciples, these fishermen. A tax collector among them. That they were able to beat a Roman guard, which was anywhere from four to sixteen men, and the temple guard that were standing guard over that tomb. And they had one sword. That's not likely, folks. The disciples gave up. Peter said, I go a fishing. It wasn't, it was not a vacation retreat for tired apostles. <laughs> Peter had failed. He had denied the Lord three times. And his, his when he said, I go efficient, his, his words in our language would be, maybe I can get my day job back. Maybe they're still hiring at the company. Because I'm washed out as a preacher and an apostle. The other said, I go with him. Forty days later, this guy that had given up and all the others were preaching in the temple about the resurrection of Jesus. What caused them to change, folks? Now, let's talk about them being liars. According to history, you take it for what it's worth. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. James killed with the sword. Thomas was skinned alive. One of the Jameses, they come to him. They said, hey, we want you to tell all these Jews out here that what you really believe about this Jesus and about following the law. And he said, I'll do it. And they took him up to a pinnacle on the temple, a high place on the temple. And he said, I'll tell you what I believe about Jesus. And he preached the death, burial, and resurrection. And it so infuriated him, they pushed him off of the temple, nearly broke every bone in his body. They took clubs and bashed him in till they had broken every bone in his body and finally killed him. John died a natural death. After he was boiled alive in oil and sent to Patmos, which was not a retirement community for old apostles, it was the mining camps of the Roman Empire. And after they went through all that, not one of them broke and said it's not true. All of them went through that and they knew they were lying. Really? Is that even marginally believable? Why would they suffer like they did if they knew they had stole the body and they were liars? No, something happened, folks. Something caused a change in those men that they were willing to die the way they did. And they weren't all delusional people. I've heard that Paul had sunstroke. <laughs> they weren't delusional. Not all of them. And not a one of them broke. There's a theory that Jesus didn't really die. This is my favorite one. I keep, even though they probably have given this up years ago because we've made so much fun of it, I continue to include it because I enjoy it so well. 
And what it is, is Jesus had a near-death experience but didn't die. He swooned and his heart slowed down real slow. And they thought he was dead. And they laid him in the tomb. And he he revived, got up, and walked away. Which is pretty cool theory if you think about it, you know. Maybe he wasn't really dead. Now, there's several things that the swoon theory does not take into account of. But we will overlook these. The fact that he was scourged nearly to death and was bleeding profusely. That he couldn't even carry the cross up the hill. That he laid in a cold, damp tomb for three days with no food, no water, no medical attention. And then revived and walked away. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Now this makes Superman look like a wimp. (laughs) That's pretty good. Oh, but it gets better than that. It doesn't take into account they stuck a spear in his side while he was on the cross. This guy's better all the time, isn't he? You talk about a man's man. They beat him. They nailed him to a cross. They stabbed him with a spear. They laid him in a cold grave. Three days, no food, no water. And he just walks away. Seriously? This is a real theory out there, people. Oh, it gets better. That's why I include this. You remember that Roman guard out there? And that temple guard? This guy is beaten to an inch of his life. Nailed to a cross, stabbed with a spear, three days, three nights, no food, no water, no medical attention, rolls a 500 and something pound stone away that these women can't move, whipped 16 guards, and walked off into the sunset. That's not even in a John Wayne movie. And John does some neat stuff. But he didn't do that. Okay, if the disciples didn't steal the body, and the swoon theory, and it is goofy beyond belief. If you can believe that, you got faith, brother. And I admire your faith. I don't have enough faith to believe that one. Oh, but there's only one thing left that caused the apostles to change their attitude. Die the way they did. Preach the way they did. And that was they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Messiah and saw him ascend to the right hand of God. Now, folks, we've just spent a little bit of time scratching the surface on some of the common things that people talk about on whether they believe in Jesus or not. Who was Jesus? Was he a liar? Well, there's no indication to that. Was he a lunatic? He had the most common sense teachings that could change the world. Nobody's changed the world more in three years of work than Jesus. Or was he the Messiah, the son of the living God? That he died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. You be the judge as we stand and sing.